Um, censorship, interestingly enough, the reason why there's censorship is because people's ideas are so weak and pathetic, they cannot accept anyone contending with them. They can't defend them, so they have to silence opposition. And then propaganda, the, you can't have propaganda without censorship. So censorship is silencing opposing views, and propaganda is putting forward a view that can't be defended with logic, but there is no other room because we're putting this forward now. And we're all being told what you're supposed to accept. And, and all of us are walking around muzzled and, and, and scared to death. And when I say all of us, I'm not talking about anybody in this building. And we're walking around being instilled with fear <clears throat> and watching a narrative where you have 50,000 doctors of the Barrington Declaration completely silenced. You, you, they've, they've taken a church, a church. Now, the governor said that we can only speak via live stream. And they've taken a church and they've separated that church from their internet congregation. So people across the country who have been calling this their fellowship, they have been contributing to this church, have now been separated from their pastor and their fellow congregants because the tech oligarchy decided what the church can and can't say. That is really dangerous and wrong. So the problem, and I told the tech oligarchy on Instagram, I'm sure they were listening. I just said, you know, you're a gnat on the butt of an elephant. And you've just opened up a can of Jesus. You're not going to get the lid on. You, you don't mess with his bride. And you know they're frightened when they have to silence a guy. I mean, literally, a year ago, we had 20 followers on YouTube. Now we have 27,000 subscribers or whatever. And you know that they're scared and that their ideas are weak when they're worried about a guy like me. Seriously. I, I don't have a doctorate. I don't even have a master's degree. And for some reason, I'm a threat to the billions of dollars they possess that they have to silence us. And the freedom we're expressing, expressing they don't want anyone in the world to know that. Well, too bad. Because whenever they try to silence it, we get a little bit more militant. Because we're contending for ideas. Because we love our neighbor. And, and folks across the country are starting to awaken to this understanding. And so uh, when Dr. Judy comes and, and Reverend Muhammad comes, it's, it's live. They're, they won't be able to broadcast it on the internet. And what we have in common is Dr. Judy shared with him and said... You know, this supposed vaccine is detrimental to the black community, especially adolescent black males, and, and goes through the whole process of that and pointing it out. And this idea how, it, how it, 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 it causes your immune system to overreact and how it's decimating the black community. And, and they've been doing their homework and they're aware of it. I mean, even when you look at Malcolm X and you, and you, you look at Louis Farrakhan, and, and look, I'm not elevating them. I'm talking about them observing scientific evidence and seeing their community being devastated by these things. Trust me, there's ideological differences, a mass problem, but we, people aren't the enemy. They're the opportunity. We have to endeavor to find that commonality and start to reason together. And you've seen me. I've been up here. As a matter of fact, 
Uh, we're we're going to break precedent. You guys are going to leave the church. That's okay. I get it. <laughs> I'm bringing a renowned atheist to come and share this pulpit on a Sunday, and he's agreed to it. Now, I don't think he's an atheist. He says he is. He's an agnostic. And he is the sweetest man. I, I, he is contending for our freedom and our liberty. And he's going up against academia. And he's talking about how critical race theory is the biggest joke on the planet. And he is, he's scorned and mocked uh, the academic world with papers that he got published on major uh, publications that he had just made up and they never tested them. <laughs> he's brilliant too. He's got a PhD. He's a tenured professor, smart guy, written a book. I'll share with you who he is later. But he's going to be up here with me. I told him, I said, look, you, you cover the stuff in the book and then I'll do the Jesus thing and maybe you'll come to Christ. <laughs> he's sweet. He, he's rolling with it. So that being said, uh, this has been an interesting week that we've been silenced. And, and Pastor Rick put this together. It's a two-year study through the Word of God. And all of you were given an opportunity to get it. And if you haven't, you need to. You should be in the Word of God every day. It's the one thing you can read that every word of it is true. And you, you may go, I don't believe it. That's okay. But trust me, if you start reading it, and, and faith, faith is going to come, and things are going to start making sense. And so it's a two-year reading plan, and, and Pastor Rick and I agreed that when we do a Saturday night service, um, that if, if Rick uh, is teaching the Saturday night, I do the Sunday morning or vice versa, we would take a passage out of that week's reading. And so uh, Pastor Rick did Mark 14 last night, and uh, I thought, okay, um, I'll do Exodus. And, and I, I love the passage we were in this week in Exodus because... Honestly, it is probably the most critical series of chapters in the Bible at this moment in the history of our lives, the history of this nation, and the future we face as a republic, and it's all contained in, in last week's readings. And now you're like, well, I didn't read it. You should have. <laughs> you should have. You would have been blessed. Folks, liberty is contagious. It's happening um, last thing, and then we'll, we'll get into the study. Um, when we violated the restraining order back in August, a church down in San Diego drove all the way up. Their pastoral staff drove up, sat in the second row right over here. Charismatic church, they were doing a lot of amens. Come on. And I'm like, you know, it kind of threw me off because you guys were. And they came to observe our church and see how to open, and they were so inspired by you all that they went back and opened every campus in San Diego. It's called Awaken Church, here in Matesius. Uh, so they asked me to come and speak. I went down there and I spoke. And when I arrived, they picked us up at the airport. I mean, they, I thought we had the gift of hospitality. We don't have a clue. Uh, they, they picked us up at the airport. When we got to the hotel, they'd already checked us in, had our keys waiting, gift basket in the room. In the morning, they would pick us up, and they would assign a driver to take us to each of the campuses. And pleasant and sweet. And uh, the driver that I was blessed with was a guy named Daniel. And I, I just, this guy was amazing. I heard his testimony. It blew me away. It was kind of like Ina and Andrew uh, when they came. It's that kind of a testimony. Really cool. And I didn't even meet his wife. She was a widow that day because he was assigned to us. Uh, joke anyways um 
And I, I turned to Dan, uh, excuse me, I, I turned to Daniel and I said, uh, come and visit us anytime. I, I want you to come and see our church because we've been knitted with Awaken. And so uh, Daniel brought his wife, Caitlin, and they're here. Stand up, you guys. Welcome. I had to tell Pastor Jurgen, I'm not stealing them. I am only serving the servants. And it's a pleasure to be with you guys in their, their church. I love you too. Amen. And make sure you tell Pastor Jurgen we love him and all of Awaken. Amen. All right. We are going to be in Exodus 17. If you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus 17. If you don't have a Bible, these folks walking down the aisle are holding Bibles that you're welcome to have and keep and use. We keep reordering Bibles because you guys are taking them. Now, you may be selling them on eBay and we're buying back our own Bibles, but I'm just telling you, if these are actually getting into your hands and you're reading them, we're doing really well. I mean, I know the price of gasoline went up and you're trying to heat your house, but the Bible's not the way to, yeah. Exodus 17. Now, the book of Exodus uh, gets its name from the three to five million Jews that exited slavery out of Egypt, and they were led by the hand of God who brought them into the promised land. And Exodus begins as God sends the ten plagues on the Egyptians, contends with Pharaoh. The three to five million Jews were crying out to God, and they were just saying, set us free. And God sends Moses. He's in his 80s. He says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And we've covered this countless times, but Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Begins to really suppress and oppress the, the Hebrew slaves. They complain to Moses, but yet God doesn't relent. Ten plagues, Pharaoh relents, lets them go, then has a change of mind because he doesn't want to lose his slave economy, so he sends his military after them to bring them back, and then God drowns the entire Egyptian military in the Red Sea, and then they're delivered into the wilderness, the desert. No food, no water. Every step of the way, they're complaining and whining. Moses is like, what are you doing? I set them free. I do what you ask me, and they... They just don't shut up. It's like going on a trip with your kids. I just want to. Grandkids are a reward from the Lord for those who didn't kill their children. And I have grandkids. And so uh, they're complaining, and then God provides manna. They don't have any food. They're in, they're in the desert. God provides manna every morning. Manna. It's a Hebrew word. It's a really cool interpretation. The Hebrew word means what is it? They walk up, they go, hey, wh what is it? And they taste it. They go, you know, that tastes like, uh, what is it? And they, they don't know what it is. And it's an interesting food because if you collect more than you need, it rots. You can only have enough for the day and then in the morning there's more. But if you collect too much and then you try to take it so no one else has it and you want to sell it, it rots. There's no storage system for manna. Except when you grab an extra portion on a Sabbath. Then it lasts for 48 hours. That's some pretty interesting food that understands a day of the week. <laughs> what is it? And in the desert, you don't have water. So 
you find in Exodus 17 that they're thirsty and God strikes the rock through Moses and the rod. Boom, and water comes out. And it's a picture of Christ being struck. And the water of life pours out. And in a wilderness, in a desert where there is no water, he is the water of life. He says, you will never thirst. The woman at the well, the story would go on for generations. And so God provides, he vanquishes enemies, he goes before his people, he fights for them. And now we come to this passage in Exodus 17 with these knuckleheads called Amalek, the Amalekites. Very interesting people. They're the first people that the Israelites go to war with, where God says, you're going to fight them. I took care of Pharaoh and his army. You're going to fight Amalek. We've been slaves. We don't know how to fight. When Moses holds up his hands and Joshua's down there and he's taking, as long as my hands are up, I'm praying for you, you're going to have victory. And you see in the passage where he starts to get tired, and his hands are a form of prayer translated in the Hebrew. He's praying. While Joshua is down in the field fighting, he's praying. Moses is praying. His hands get tired, and Aaron and Hur come over, and they hold up his arms. Because Moses is 80, getting, you know, he went from 80 to 120. He's like, and every time he get tired, and Joshua's like, hey, hold his arms up. Because he's fighting, winning when he's doing this. And when Moses' hands go down, Joshua's getting his proverbial kicked. And Aaron and her come and hold up his arms. And it's a, it's a, it's a position of prayer. And, and you, you've probably seen people in the church raise their hands. And you're looking because you're unfamiliar with church. And you're like, oh, gosh, what's going on here? <laughs> it's not happy, Dale. It's not, it's not, we're not crazy. It's, this is just an international sign of surrender. And all they're doing is they're just telling God, I give you my life. You know, I, I've been running from you. I've been fighting you. I, here you go. Is that uncomfortable for you? Because pride would stop you from it. There you go. I see your hand. God bless you. And we've surrendered. And, and, and that's also a form of prayer where, you know, Lord, whatever you want, I surrender. Yeah. And Lord, I, I don't have any ability to do this apart from you. Would you please, God? I, I'm submitted. And so that's Moses' position. Joshua's winning. And this war is going on. And they're contending. And here's the passage. It's in Exodus 17. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. If you spilled anything, that's five bucks. Put it in the offering box. <laughs> Actually, that's why we put in concrete floors. Spill all you want. We just mop it up. Exodus 17, just two verses so you don't get exhausted. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name the Lord is my banner, my covering, Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I've never met an Amalekite, but God has got it out for them. And you know what? They exist today. And Balaam the fourth prophecy in Numbers said this about Amalek. He looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but shall be the last until he perishes. This is a really serious group of people. And 
in Orthodox Judaism, they are very mindful of a spirit of Amalek. And by the way, Haman in the book of Esther was an Amalekite, according to Jewish tradition. Lots to cover. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would lead us into all truth and you'd minister to all who are present. We're grateful, Lord, for this fellowship, fellowship of freedom, because where Christ is, that's the presence of liberty. You are the, the source. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Now we see, Lord, a force that wants to contend for the freedom that you have established. Forces are arrayed to stop that. The Amalekites. And yet, God, you said they'd be here forever. They would be the last to perish. And that they were first among the nations to contend. They were the first that your people fought. And now, Lord, they exist today. And we ask that you would minister to us and show us what it is you'd have us to know. We commit this study to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat. I subscribe to the Washington, or excuse me, to the Wall Street Journal, and uh, I, I got this article, and it was written on January 9th, 2021, by Leon Cass, and it's called Exodus and American Nationhood. I was intrigued by the article and began to read it. I, I, I love the book of Exodus. Our founders did too, by the way. In this article, Leon Cass says, what makes a people a people? What forms their communal identity and holds them together and guides their lives? To what do they look up? For what should they strive? These questions have risen to the surface in our turbulent times as controversy swirls about the goodness of the nation state and the meaning of peoplehood. Celebrating globalization cosmopolitan elites increasingly act and regard themselves as citizens of the world, reasserting older identities. Many citizens who treasure their own nation's ways see them as being threatened by foreign ideologies and non-assimilating immigrants. Even in our long-established American republic, what defines and unifies the nation has become an urgent question. For help in thinking about these issues... I have turned to the book of Exodus. Why Exodus? This biblical book not only recounts the political founding of one of the world's oldest and most consequential peoples, it also invites us to think about the moral meaning of communal life and the requirements of political self-rule and the standards for judging a social order better or worse. Many great thinkers, religious and not, have studied Exodus for its political wisdom. Many great thinkers, religious and not, uh, in this day and age, who have sought it for political wisdom, but also in the 17th century, political thinkers found guidance for reform in the ancient Hebrew Republic, while jurists saw in the Hebrew Bible the foundation for universal principles of justice. The idea that the best body politic rests on the biblical notion of covenant entered the American colonies with the Mayflower Compact and the American tradition of civic republicanism. And that's not the party, by the way. It's a form of government for the younger folks. They don't teach you that in school, but that's what it means. 
It owes much to the Puritan's devotion to the Hebrew Bible. The case for investigating the political teachings of Exodus was made perhaps most eloquently and succinctly by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the late 18th century. The Jews provide us with an astonishing spectacle. The laws of Greek and Roman lawgivers are dead. The very much older laws of Moses are still alive. Any man whosoever he is must acknowledge this as a unique marvel, the causes of which divine or human certainly deserve the study and admiration of the sages. What then can we learn when we turn to Exodus? The second book of the Bible tells the story. Exodus starts, the Israelites are flourishing in Egypt, seeking to curb their proliferation. The new Pharaoh reduces them to slavery and orders the drowning of all male infants. And then we see that God delivers them through the hand of Moses as we covered. They pass unharmed through the sea that was parted by the Lord and then Pharaoh's army is drowned. They wander in the desert. They arrive at Mount Sinai, which we are now in Exodus 17. And you think about it. The whole story parallels, in a sense, with America. Israel's story. We Americans owe our origins to escape from despotism and a desire for religious freedom. We, too, are a particular and distinctive people with a universal creed, one of biblical provenance. In announcing our birth, we declare that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We too have a constitution, a constituting national law, a constitution approved by the consent of the people. And when in the mid-19th century our union was challenged and its founding creed repudiated, we renewed it through the sacrifice of a bloody civil war so that, as Abraham Lincoln said, this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. For most of its history, America was a nation characterized by reverence as much as by love of liberty. And like the Israelites at Sinai, the pilgrims aboard the Mayflower seeking to serve God, covenantally entered into a civil body politic even before they hit land or had an economy. Our constitution is not neutral as between religion and irreligion, although unlike other nations, we have no established religion. Our most fundamental right enshrined in the First Amendment protects religion's free exercise. Almost finished. In describing Americans, Alexis de Tocqueville celebrated our mutually reinforcing spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion. Lincoln called us an almost chosen people. Herman Melville made the comparison explicit Escape from the house of bondage, Israel of old did not follow after the ways of the Egyptians. To her was given an express dispensation. To her were given new things under the sun, and we Americans are the peculiar chosen people, the Israel of our time. We bear the ark of the liberties of the world. That was Herman Melville. They don't read him anymore in school. This is the close of his article. He says, against degrading <clears throat> human proclivities... The law not only prohibits wrongful conduct that threatens civil peace and order, it also promotes human excellence and directs the soul towards the divine source of all blessings. To be clear, such a reading of Exodus is no call for theocracy. We know that mixing militant religion with politics often has deadly consequences. But the last century's godless politics of Hitler, 
Stalin, Mao, slaughtered, degraded more people than all religious wars combined. As G.K. Chesterton put it, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. With both atheism and political fanaticism on the rise in Western societies, we may soon discover what happens should humanity return to dehumanizing pre-biblical alternatives whose modern equivalents lurk off stage. The techno-despotic ways of the Egyptians, the earth-worshiping and licentious ways of the Canaanites, or the cosmopolitan and soulless dream of Babel builders and the suppression of Amalek. In these confused and dangerous times, the most Western nations struggling to articulate why they should exist at all and with the human future in balance, we can ill afford to neglect any possible sources of wisdom about human affairs precisely because we 21st century Americans are not theocrats but loyal yet worried members of a modern liberal democracy. We have much to learn from the book of Exodus as Rousseau argued 250 years ago. This timeless book remains an indispensable resource for thinking about the good life and the good community freedom and law, justice and holiness, and the meaning and the purpose of our existence, it deserves and rewards our most serious attention. Dust off the old book, start reading it. You see, <clears throat> you think globalism's the answer. It's been tried. Read about the Tower of Babel. It's there. You think despotism works. It's been tried. Read it. It's in the Bible. It's all there. There's a reason why for 244 years we've had such unprecedented freedom. It's because we acknowledge a creator and a moral law that gives us a civil law. And so with that being said, we come to this place in Exodus, this book that is so critical to the foundation of our nation that Moses has used to set God's people free from slavery He's praying while Joshua's contending with Amalek, the first nation that they're warring against if they're going to have any deliverance. Amalek, they're, they're bad people prophesied in the fourth prophecy of Balaam. We know that they're going to be around for generations to come. And God said this of them. He, he, he despised them, and this is why. And if you, if you disregard and, and, and dismiss what God says about Amalek, and you think that he's being cruel and unjust... Get your own universe. Because the more you read the scriptures, the more you realize he's not unjust. We just think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We think we're the center of the universe and that we are the moral equivalent of God. We're problematic and selfish. God says about Amalek, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. I told Joshua, and I'm telling you again in Deuteronomy, these people are bad. When your children were straggling and your old people were sick, they preyed on you like a pack of wolves. When you were tired, they came and they hunted you. They were cowards. And they were systematic in the way they picked off the weak. 
They went after your babies. They went after your old people. Ninety percent of the deaths have been 65 and older. And our children are being eviscerated in the womb. That's Amalek. That's the spirit of Amalek. He's preying on our families. And God says, wipe them out. Get rid of him. This whole cycle and the reason why Amalek was the one that God chose and the reason why he told Joshua, make this memorial. And he tells him in Deuteronomy, don't forget these guys. And when you get into that land, you make sure there's not even any vestige of them. They're bad. They're, they're calculated in, 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 in the way they operate. They, they are brilliant evil. The Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I just, just I have to tell you, today is a, a demonic day. The devil stole an hour of my sleep. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> ben Franklin would have thought it was funny. And some of you are going, why did you bring up Ben Franklin? Do your homework. This idea of freedom, they've been set free from Egypt. God brings them into the wilderness. He provides them food. He provides them water. And then Amalek comes to devour them in their freedom. And God says, this is your responsibility. You take them on now because this is going to be with you for life. And as soon as he does that, chapters 18, 19, and 20 are remarkable. And all this is encapsulated in what the Scottish historian Titler put together of a free people. He says it begins in bondage at the top, and then you cry out to God as the, as the Israelites did, and then there's spiritual faith, and then God gives you courage. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And with that courage, you begin to stand in the face of those who would enslave. You contend with them, and you realize you're immortal until God's done with you. You have no fear. No one can stop you. They can't bribe you. You're an, you're an, you're an unstoppable force because if God is for you, who and what could be against you? No weapon fashioned against you will stand. That courage is just unbelievable. One in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War and took down the greatest nation on the face of the earth and they did it with courage and they knew they were in the right and they stood there and they said, what are you going to do? Threaten me with heaven? I want liberty. There's nothing more valuable to me than liberty. Do your best. Do your best. And liberty came and with liberty, the expanse of, of, of the West and industry and freedom and for 244 years, we, we, we had, no nation has more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners, more symphonies. We created more wealth in, in this nation than any other in the history of the world. Yeah. If, if, you, if you go in a skyscraper, you, you can go because an American invented the elevator. Yeah. If you ride that elevator in a, another tall skyscraper, in Saudi Arabia, you can endure it because it's air conditioned because an American invented the air conditioner. And you flew over in an airplane that an American invented. That's what freedom does. It allows us to obtain excellence and come up with great ideas as we don't stifle speech. 
But when Amalek comes in, he muzzles it because he wants control and he wants to destroy. And they come after the weak. And so this liberty, when abundance comes, we don't become vigilant anymore. And then we're just inundated with our selfishness. Let someone else do it. I don't want to go to the school board meeting. I don't want to go to a city council meeting. I don't want to go to my HOA. Let someone else do it. Let someone else teach my kids. I don't know what they're teaching, but I'm too busy because I got to buy stuff I don't need to impress people I don't know with money I don't have. Look, we promise you that just a few more months, no, 15 days, now a few more months, and listen, if you're all good and you wear that muzzle, we'll allow you to celebrate Independence Day. (laughs) And after a while, you just kind of lose the fight. You're complacent. That complacency turns to apathy. Who cares? And then dependency. If I do this, do I get that? I'll comply. And all of us, we die by a thousand little cuts of surrender. You're conservative, you know the truth, and now it comes at a cost. And you think, well, I don't want to lose my job, so I'll wear the mask. I don't want to be canceled. I got so many followers. So I'll change my direction. And no longer does the truth matter. It's security. And as you surrender your freedom for the hope of security, you receive neither and you find yourself back in bondage. And now they're telling us what to do. When did that happen? You got to come. You know why people came last night? I don't think it was, Rick's an amazing teacher. I love the guy. I don't think they came to hear him preach. They came to have dinner together around a table with people. And we, we did the service so that we could reduce the attendance on these services. And you people came to dinner and came today. And the joy of it is we love being with each other. Because there's freedom. But Amalek comes to take that. God warns us. Amalek reared his ugly head. We find it again in in a passage in uh, 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, Samuel's the prophet of Israel. Saul has just been made king. The people wanted a king. God's like, Samuel, you warn them what they're going to get with a king. He's going to take the best vineyards. He's going to take the... The, the daughters and the sons and he's going to use them as soldiers and he, he, he's just going to he's just going to be despotic over time and they said we don't care we want to be like the other nations you see because after that story of Amalek in Exodus that you have the very next thing is Jethro shows up and says Moses he's his father-in-law you got to listen to your father-in-law right Tom And Jethro says, Moses, you're exhausted. 
You're dispensing what God is declaring in the law, but you're one man and they need representation. Appoint godly men who are not covetous over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, federal, state, county, local. Give them a representative form of government, the first representative form of government in the history of the world that our founders studied when they gave us what we have in this constitutional republic. They found it in this next chapter. And so they appoint these godly men to hear the cases and they have representation. And then the next chapter is God brings the law. But this Amalek keeps rearing the ugly head and instead of a representative form of government, the nation returns to a king and Amalek shows up in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel comes to Saul. Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and says to him, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way back when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. I want a scorched earth policy. I don't want even so much as an animal that they rode on to remain alive. They have decimated our children. They have decimated our old people. They do not care about life, and they have lost their right to be on this earth, breathing my air, drinking my water, eating my food. They have not lived by my rules, and they have attacked my people. Wipe them out. Mm. A lot of you are going, I, that's so mean. And so Saul goes to war. And they have victory. But they don't kill all of them. And they don't destroy the animals. Chapter 15 goes on to say that Saul kept the best of the fatted calves and the sheep and the donkeys. And he kept King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. As a trophy, that's what the kings did. You know, pride. You like to cut off his tongue and you have him serve people. You know, he used to be the king of the Amalekites. Of course, he's serving me tea now. Why don't you come take this bunion and scrape it for me there, king? <laughs> and it was a pride thing. It was flesh. And he keeps him in his, in his entourage. And Samuel shows up. Samuel's old. He's like 90 plus, just, and he makes the trek. He's, he's upset. He has to talk to Saul because God sent him. I had to go there. And he gets there. I think it, and he gets to Saul and Saul sees him. He goes, I've obeyed you. Praise the Lord. It's good to have you here, Samuel. And in the background, you hear this, And Saul says, I've, I've obeyed everything God's asked me to do. And Samuel says, what is the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle I hear? Saul's like, what are you talking about? He says, oh, those. 
the people. Yeah, I told them, but they kept it for themselves. I mean, what am I to do? I'll tell you what you're supposed to do. You're king. God said, do that. They disobeyed you. And by the way, when you're confronted with sin in your life, you can do one of three things. Blame others. The people. They they did the cows. Make excuses. And his was, I did everything God said. Well, people, I mean, anyways, make excuses, blame others, or what God really wants, and that's repent. Own it, tell him you're sorry, and move on. He doesn't repent. And he said, I kept King Agag alive. And then Samuel says to Saul, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. He disobeyed the Lord. And by the way, he's an Amalekite. I mean, this, you're a king. You know the scriptures. You've read them. You saw what was said to Joshua. You, you've read in Deuteronomy. You know numbers. What, what are you, an idiot? Is this so important to you that you have to walk around with pride that you're going to parade a king and let everyone see that he scra- scrapes your bunions? You're, the kingdom's gone. It's not about your pride. It's not about people thinking you're that. These people, their ideology is set on destroying you. And you're keeping them alive. The kingdom's being taken from you and given to another. And, and, and Saul begins to cry and he realizes, he, you know, he's, he's, he's not repentant. He just got caught. Yeah. And, and he, he doesn't want to lose his kingdom. And he tears the corner of Samuel's robe as Samuel's walking away. And Samuel, at 90 plus years of age, he's old. And some of you are 90 plus. He, that's back then. That's like 190 back then. Seriously. I mean, nowadays we live long. And, and, as, and as Samuel does this, he goes, bring Agag here. <laughs> and the passage, I think I have it in here. The passage says that they brought Agag to Samuel. And the scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 1, says that Samuel hacked Agag to death. There you go. Then the young man who told him said, as I have happened by chance. No, that's not it. Sorry. No, that is it. No, it isn't it. What are you talking about? No, it is it. It isn't it. But it's okay. Just, just leave it alone. Don't touch anything. He hacked. He hacked him to death. The word in the Hebrew, hacked, I looked it up. In verbatim, this is what it said. I'm not done yet. (laughs) Hacked him. Blood everywhere. Yeah. Bible's kind of fun that way and he throws the sword and he's like when God tells you to do something do it and he moves on now there's a picture kind of PG I did find some pictures where there were limbs missing and I didn't do that God doesn't mess around with Amalek and neither should we 
This, is, this runs in a theme in Orthodox Judaism, by the way, the spirit of Amalek. Look at this. When Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany visited Jerusalem during his journey to the Holy Land, almost all the religious leaders of Jerusalem came to the city gates to greet him. Rabbi Yosef Chaim Sonnefeld, uh, he died in 1932, the spiritual leader of the Ashkenazic Jewry in Israel at the time, did not go. When asked about his refusal, he answered that although the Kaiser himself was deserving of the honor bestowed upon him, I have tradition that Germany is Amalek. Kind of a prophetic guy. The Germans killed six and a half million of them. Some are going, no, wasn't that many. You can't burn six and a half million Jews. Have you ever seen how emaciated they were? Do you know how easy it is to burn really dry kindling? For centuries, sages have always identified Amalek as not so much being a nation defined by location or by bloodline, but by attitude. Amalek is the attitude of anti-Semitism that has uttered irrational hatred of Jews and the law. Amalek can be found in many forms. Amalek would be Nazi Germany. Amalek does not only exist amongst nations, he's in our own heart. I'll explain. Your way or God's way? Some of the, the worst cases of Amalek are in the Jewish community and the Christian community. There, there, are, there are hereditary Jews that have been detrimental and devastating to the Jewish community and the world at large. Karl Marx, he was Jewish. Sigmund Freud, one was the father of communism, the other of psychoanalysis. You can see their hatred for God in their writings. They hated God. They, they sought to replace God's law with their dribble. Political ideologies were formed from these Amalek minds. Both communism and psychoanalysis have failed to provide any solutions for the troubles in our world. Don't forget Thomas de Torquemada, the founder of the Spanish Inquisition, responsible for the torture and deaths of thousands of Jews. Little remembered by history is the fact that he was born of Jewish blood. The biblical commandment to destroy Amalek still remains, and to be removed from the earth still remains. It's an ideology, it's a mindset. God says, if you love me, you'll obey me. You follow his commandments, they bring blessing. And you think, how do I get Amalek out of my life? Well, it, it's a mindset of obeying God more than man. You don't fight Amalek with physical weapons. It's contending for truth and standing in the face of evil 
and not being afraid. When you use weapons, you only create martyrs. And God wants us to stand. He wants us to fight him in the public, in the public square, everywhere where this ideology is destroying our young and our old, everywhere where our people are being enslaved. They're hostile to the holy. They want to remove God. They want to remove boundaries, truth. They are inundated with confusion. Contrary to God, they would say, it is not a baby, it's a blob of tissue. There aren't two, two genders. They exchange the truth for a lie. And they infiltrate the minds. And the stupidity of what we embrace, we, we look in less than a year now a year, I guess. And we think, what happened? And Amalek is all over the church. Submitting to tyranny. While homelessness rages and poverty rages and businesses are destroyed, the Amaleks in the church bow down to the tyrant and allow their people to be destroyed and enslaved. All because of fear. What will they think of me? doesn't matter you're already dead what do you think you're holding on to because whatever you think you're holding on to that's selfish it's it's for your kids and your grandkids that you contend we're more than conquerors this is this is the church's finest hour what a wonderful time to be alive But alas, you may be of notoriety in the kingdom, but you got a source of Amalek in your heart. And for whatever reason, you've decided not to put it to death. And you're playing their game. And you've allowed them to silence the truth. You want to hold on to your power, or you want to brag, or you want people to think you're of notoriety, so you keep Agag alive. And it makes you popular. You're concerned about your social following, so keep Agag alive. And the greatest travesty is 2 Samuel chapter 1. Saul and his son Jonathan are fighting the Amalekites. It's the end of his kingdom. He's losing. They retreat up to Mount Gilboa. When we go to Israel, I'll show you. And they're up there, the two of them. Jonathan now dies. That's David's best friend. David is heartbroken. And, and Saul's fighting the Amalekites, and they're surrounding him. And then, boom, he's mortally wounded. And, he, and he's, he's bleeding out. And he knows they're going to patch him up. And they, he knows that the Amalekites are going to parade him like he did Agag. He knows he's going he's gonna to be a spectacle of humiliation. And he's dying. Word gets to David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. It's in 2 Samuel. A man told him, 
The man said that I was over him on Mount Gilboa. I saw him leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after Saul. And he looked behind him, and he saw me, and I called to him, and I answered. I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, and I said, I'm an Amalekite. I think he said like this, I'm an Amalekite. (laughs) He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over Saul and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord to infiltrate your kingdom with my Amalekite ideas. I killed that king. I can kill you, but I want you to think I'm with you. And here is Saul bleeding out and the Amalekite killing him. And if you read in 2 Samuel what David does he looks at that Amalekite he turns to his lieutenant he says kill that man and then they wipe out Amalekites the thing is God says today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes his commandments his judgments and that you will obey his voice also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that he, you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. And when you continue on from the Amalekite statement, the people see this cloud and Moses stands there as a representative of the people after they've been appointed thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens and then God descends and the people are stunned and then in Exodus 20, God gives them the moral law here you go be right with me and right with each other And from that will come civil law. Because you're going to have abundance. But never lose sight that it's about what I want you to do. Because when you do and you love the abundance and the gifts more than the giver, you will be in slavery. But I've come to set you free. You must contend with Amalek every day of your life and you put him to death. You do not allow the deception of anything that's contrary to my law, my moral law, coming into the lives of your children. You contend at those school boards. You don't allow someone else to take a child that I've stewarded to you. You're my people. This is my law. It doesn't save you. It protects the society in which you live. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You're not to have any other gods before me. You contend with Amalek. This is truth. And he says, you shall, take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother. 
and that your days may be long upon the earth which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder even the ones that the world says are not human. You don't murder them. You don't commit adultery. You don't steal. You don't bear false witness against your neighbor and you don't covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. And Exodus 20 concludes with these words. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled. Welcome to Exodus 20. That's how you have freedom in a nation. Inalienable rights given by God. You're accountable to him. Don't you dare mess with each other. You will breathe your last and stand before him. Now, we, you don't have to be in the Christian church. You don't have to be a part of this denomination. But realize this, that one day you will breathe your last and stand before God. And you better have loved your neighbor like you love yourself. And you better do the right things. Because that's how a nation survives. And don't put up with the deception. It is a human being. There are two genders. This is life. The muzzle doesn't work. Let's wake up and start doing things the way God wants. Corey Tenboom used to say when people would cheer when she'd speak, she would collect those roses and give that bouquet to the Lord. You're cheering for what God's done in your life. What he's done in my life. I'll leave you with this. An Amalekite killed Saul. And the thing that you're unwilling to put to death that God has commanded needs to go. And you know what that is in your life. You know what your fear is. You know what you're afraid to lose. All of us have come face to face with it. This is about generations to come. This is about truth. You know what that Amalekite is in your life. And if you don't put him to death like the Lord says, he'll end up killing you and your family. Jonathan and Saul died that day. Not just, not, not just Saul, but his son the hand of Amalekites. It's a spirit, it's not a people. It's an ideology that we must contend with. And if you're afraid, I would really question if you trust him. Because he hasn't given me a spirit of fear. Why would he give you one? His word says, which is true, he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind stand upon it. It's time to be his people and to live free and to contend for truth and to look forward to what awaits us. And whatever trial we endure, it's for the generations to come. That's what makes a nation great. Let's have Terry and Nancy come up and close us out.